0: This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present for all full 180 days he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor of his glory glory of his majesty when these days were over the king gave a banquet lasting 7 days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the king's for all the people from the last of the gathering sorry from the from the least of the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords and white linen, and purple materials of silver rings of marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of (sighs) phosphory and marble, mother of pearls, and other costly stones. Wine was served in gold. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm nervous. I don't know why. <laughs> wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king introduced all the wines. Stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in the high spirit of wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs (laughs) who served him Mehuman Bitha, Harbuna Bitha, Abatha. Sethar and Caracas to bring before him Queen Vashti, war- warning her, wearing her royal crown in the order to display her beauty to the people and nobles for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were close to the king. Karshana, Shethar, Admatha, Tarish, Merish, Marsana, and Memukan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, What must be done to the Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes, that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memulkan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the people of all provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women and, to the, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Sirius's command commanded the Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the noble nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of this disrespect, and discord. Therefore, if it please the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed. That Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give the royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict and proclaimed when the king when the king's edict and proclaimed the throughout throughout all this throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Memukan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom to each province in its own script and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that even every man should be ruler over his house using his native tongue.
1: Can we just give her a hand? That was like really hard text guys, come on. I was really impressed with the names. I was reading along and I was like, I have, I have no idea how to pronounce that name. Your guess is as good as mine. So before we get started in Esther, uh, I just want to take a moment and say happy Mother's Day to the few moms who are out here. I know or there's a few at the back. One at least, I can see. <laughs> Woo! If you didn't know it's Mother's Day, your mom knows it's Mother's Day, so... You should probably call her. Uh, I just want to take a minute actually and just say uh, just a quick prayer, a blessing over moms, not just for the moms who are here, but also all of our moms. I think it's they are worthy to take a moment and pray a blessing over of all the things that at least my mom had to put up with. Father, we thank you so much for the moms who are here today and all the moms who are the reason we are all here today. We pray that you would bless them on this day And that, yeah, that their children would hopefully remember them well, and that they would be honored in their hearts, and by those around them, for we know, Lord, they are the, yeah, the bringer-up, the raising-up, the raiser-ups of the next generation, and they have given us so much and sacrificed so much on our behalf, and so we pray, Father, that you would return to them a great blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. So, today we're starting a new series, Esther, as we, you probably guessed, as we've just read through the first chapter of Esther, that would have been really weird if we were doing a different book. So we're in Esther, and I was thinking, I did a lot of reading and research about Esther this week. It's a very peculiar book, at least that's what all the commentaries say. And uh, they seem to all have very different and strong opinions and varying ways and directions. A lot of this we'll be looking at and unpacking over the next 10 weeks. We're going to do one chapter a week. At least that's the basic idea. We'll see how it all goes as we go through it. And an image came to my mind when I thought about Esther, especially in reading all the commentaries. I don't know if you have ever done a jigsaw puzzle. I've tried, and one time I tried to do a thousand-piece black-and-white jigsaw puzzle, I did not finish it, I gave up, it was like, this is insane, it was, they all looked the same. But I was thinking about a jigsaw puzzle and how really when we look at the Bible, we have all of these different books, we have all these different kind of, uh, these letters in the New Testament, we have all these different kinds of writing, so many different writers and over so many different time periods and over three languages. and. All of these pieces are are kind of beautiful and, and unique in their own way, but when we put them together, we really see the image of Jesus Christ. All of the Bible is put together perfectly to build the image of Jesus as Lord and Savior in one way or another. It all points to him. Every piece is a truth in itself and should be examined in itself, but it fits together to form this greater truth of Jesus Christ. And when we continue with this idea, and we apply it to the book of Esther, it's kind of like when you're, when you're doing a puzzle and you have that one piece and you're like, ah, is it an edge piece? Is, I have, there's not even, it doesn't match any of the colors, I have no idea where this goes. And so you kind of just put it off to the side until you can figure out what piece is left when you're done. Because it's a bit of an unusual book in a few ways which we'll be looking at uh, as we go through. So at first glance, it can seem a little bit out of place. And today we're going to focus on the book in its entirety. Um, We'll look a little bit at what we read through in uh, chapter one, but I want to kind of do just a bit of an overview of what we're going to be getting into, a little bit of background on the story and the book itself, and touch a little bit on the purpose and some of the key themes that we'll see and some interesting traits that we'll see through this letter. I think it's important. We always do this. If you're new here, we always at the beginning of a new book, I always like to take the beginning to just kind of do a bit of an overview, a bit of an idea of what we're going to be getting into. It helps us to understand uh, as we read through the story some of the things that are going on, some of the things that will just help us to kind of grasp the truths better. And as always, I encourage you uh, to take time and read through The book of Esther or listen through it you can now you can just listen to it on your phone or whatever um, just so you can kind of have the whole um, story in mind as we're going through it week by week uh, so that we can build on the kind of greater image of what's going on so just a little bit of background we'll go hopefully fairly quickly through this but I think it helps the author is anonymous so that's helpful we don't know who wrote it um some people believe it's mordecai which is the cousin of esther uh, he kind of fits the bill uh, because the author is somebody that would have known the customs of the time and obviously not just the customs but a lot of historical events i mean as you can see in chapter one they're really kind of painting a picture of, of like really what's going on in the kingdom at that time and so they would have been somebody that was fairly familiar with the characters as well as the customs uh plus kind of spoiler alert um Mordecai is going to be raised up into a pretty high position of authority in the Persian Empire at this time. And so he would have also had some, some power, some authority, and what he wrote would have probably lasted beyond him, would have been preserved. So it's just one option. It doesn't really matter a whole lot, but I thought I'd share that with you guys because I took the time to read about it. So now you get to hear about it. Yeah, you guys seem really excited. Now the story takes place in Persia. And it's over about a 10-year uh, frame a uh, uh, time period. So when you read through it really quickly, you kind of can miss that, uh, that there actually is quite a bit of time that's happening as the story is unfolding. Um, we'll look at next week that uh, Esther, uh, for instance, enters a, basically a beauty contest, and it takes 12 months basically to put her makeup on. And um, no, not really. But she goes through like a beauty treatment for 12 months. So there's like a whole year of time Right there, And you kind of can miss that when you're reading through. So I think it's good to keep in mind that there's actually quite a lot of time that has passed as this story unfolds. Uh, this is uh, takes place in Persia, specifically as we read in Susa or Susa. You guys can decide how you want to pronounce that. It's uh, one of the capital cities of Persia during the reign of Xerxes, who reigned from 486 to 464. Also, I know you guys are all going to it's going to be on the test next week. So make sure you're taking notes. Um, and this was after, there's some of the, I know there's a lot of information here, and, but a lot of it I think will, I picked out the things that I think will help us to grasp the story better as we go through it, so it's, there's purpose here, stay with me, uh, because this was actually after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites, and if you know your Bible well, uh, Daniel is kind of the, the book of Daniel is a glimpse into that time period, so right after the, uh, there's a, a huge exile is the, the Babylonians kind of take over Jerusalem, and they take a bunch of people into Babylon, and that's kind of where the story of Daniel takes place. And so at this point, some time has passed. Babylon, The Babylonian Empire has been kind of taken over by the Persian Empire. And at this time, a lot of the Jews have, have returned back to Jerusalem, uh, which is one of the unique traits of this book because... It's one of the only glimpses we have of the jews who stayed in persia so it's one of the only glimpses we have of that particular group of people at that particular time Uh, whereas during daniel that was at the beginning when they were first exiled there but this is after a lot of them had returned god actually commanded the people to return to jerusalem and some did but many more had stayed in the land Of their exile and that's kind of where this is taking place and Xerxes had a lot of power or the Persian empire had a lot of power at this time as the story begins the king is is preparing for another war that's kind of what's happening here in the beginning and why it kind of uh, depicts the whole um, all the wealth that he has and, and kind of is showing that he's kind of he takes 180 days to show his wealth to show his power and what he was doing was he was kind of preparing for another uh, war with the Greeks, and if you know your history, it turns out better for the Greeks in the end. They become the next world power after the Persian Empire, but he's kind of preparing for that, and so he has all his generals, all of the kind of leaders at the time to kind of show, look, I I have the money, I've got the means, we're ready for this, I need your support, I need you guys to be with me on this, so that's kind of what's happening there at the beginning, and why he's spent 108 days to show how powerful he is, and then ends it with a seven-day party before all of the military. And in verse one, we see that the Xerxes ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. So this is a massive area of space. Literally, that's, that's going up into Europe, that's down into Egypt, all the way down toward India. It was I mean, it was it covered most of the map, and this is where most of the people in the world were living at the time. So why that's worth noting is because this story, in the story of Esther, there's going to be this kind of malicious plot happening behind the scenes throughout the story as the story unfolds to eradicate all the Jews living in the Persian Empire. And this could have been literally the, the complete wiping out of the Jews if they had succeeded. And so it's important to note that if they had succeeded in wiping out the jews in the europe in the persian empire at the time it would have been all the jews practically maybe literally we don't know anything about where they m- might else have been but most likely that would have been all of them that also would include uh, jerusalem at the time so then we can get into why was this book written it was written For a few reasons and we're going to look at kind of the themes of the book in a moment but one of the primary reasons it was written at least the reason that it gives us is the foundation for purim Um, we know this from chapter 9 and 10 and we'll look at it more then but uh, purim is basically kind of a a carnival celebration uh, celebrated yearly to this day by in israel and also by in all jewish major jewish communities And its origin begins here in this book. And it's meant, uh, this origin is meant to kind of be a reminder and to commemorate God saving the Jewish people living in the Persian Empire at this time. God uses, God's going to use Mordecai and He's going to use Esther to save the Jewish people from this plot, from Haman, who's the kind of antagonist in the story, uh, who's plotting to destroy them. And this is a key purpose of the book of Esther, to see this celebration not only kind of where it, where it began, what its root is, but also to see it continue um, throughout this, you know, the generations to come, which obviously it has achieved as it's still celebrated today. And we will look at that more uh, as we get when we get to the end of the book where it talks about the founding of Purim and what Purim means, and there's a lot we can get into that. I'll save that for later. You guys can be excited. This book is also... I believe one of the most interesting books, again, like I say, it's kind of like a, a piece of the puzzle that seems a bit out of place at first um, in its uniqueness. First of all, it's one of only two books that's named after a woman, which makes it quite special. Um, we, the other one, of course, being Ruth, which we also went through here in Church at Five, if you didn't know. <laughs> and the second is that the story in itself is loaded with drama and excitement and a lot of humor like laugh out loud humor as we'll see when we get to it. There's also romance and the drama begins right here right we have this kind of king queen drama with Vashti like refusing to go to the king and oh what are we going to do about this and now all the women are going to rebel and so it's a little dramatic a little over the top in fact it's Way over the top in a lot of areas of the book, and it's one of the reasons that it has uh, some controversy about it. And even Martin Luther said uh, something to the effect that he wishes that it wasn't in the Bible. <laughs> He's like, "I wish Esther was not in the Bible. I don't like it." I'm paraphrasing, but he really said that. He doesn't. He didn't like it. He didn't uh, didn't see how it should belong in the in the Bible, but. Clearly, his convictions were that it was a part of the Bible, it was a part of the puzzle, it was a part of God's Word, because he put it in his translation of the Bible. But it is, it is one that uh, seems a bit over the top, and what's really unique or fascinating about this one is that God is never mentioned, which is another thing that I think Martin struggled with. He's never mentioned once in the book. He's not named in any capacity, either directly or indirectly, and there's not even a direct mention of prayer or communion with God. They do say there is a, a, a moment where they are fasting, and some would say that, that because they're fasting, it implies prayer, um, but it specifically doesn't add in the word prayer or talking with God or any kind of communion with God. It's quite seems a bit odd, seems a bit out of place when it comes to Bible stories. And I think that what we, can, what we can really gather from this is that the story of Esther is one of God's providence. It's one of God's providence, God's working behind the scene. We see this young orphaned girl, Esther is an orphan, and it would seem at the very beginning that her, she, there's no hope for her, where she doesn't have a, any parents, she's a foreigner, an exile, living in a, a land that there was already a lot of kind of tension between um, the Persians and the Jews. But, though, but through God's providence, her life is directed towards something she never could have imagined. She's adopted by her cousin, Mordecai. He uh, takes her and adopts her, who also plays a, a key role in being used by God and using, and directed by God's providence to save the Jewish people. So Esther goes from an orphan to adopted and from adopted to a powerful queen, as we'll begin to see next week. But it's not for herself, but to save her people from a destructive plan that was in the works behind the scenes. So the story is filled with all of these different layers. We see... There's what's happening on the surface of things. So we can read this at surface value, at face value, seeing how the characters interact with one another, seeing how everything kind of plays out. But it's really well written and so that we can see deeper than what's literally unfolding in the characters' lives. The next level is we see the secret lives of the characters. So Esther hides her Jewish heritage, as she is as she uh, first steps into the role as queen Haman hides his evil scheme and his his real greater plan to destroy the the Jews and also his plan to destroy Mordecai who's kind of become his becomes his enemy his rival and Mordecai hides his relationship to Esther so there's already kind of like all this like double-sided like drama and secrets it's it's like a good novel and then there's this third layer, the force behind everything. And this is Providence. This is God's divine providence. It's a story that gives evidence. The truth sometimes can really be stranger than fiction, as we'll see. As we'll see the story unfold, it's bizarre, it's over the top, it's taken to the extreme in more than one case. I want to go through now three key themes that we're going to see in this book. One is going to be the absurdity of wickedness. Two is human responsibility. And three is divine providence. And as we go through the book, we're going to take more time to dive into each of these more in depth and specifically, but I want to look at them because I know you all read the whole story this week, or are planning to this week. So let's look at this so that we can kind of see the bigger picture, see the big thing that's going on behind the scenes in this story. So let's look at number one. Number one, the absurdity of wickedness. The absurdity of wickedness. This is a very prominent theme in this book. This story kind of flips the typical narrative of the time. We would, uh, we would uh, imagine that those who have power have power and are seen as such. But this is what makes it such a great movie plot. Because we, the reader, as we read it, we can see all the layers of the story unfolding. The situations are set up. All the pieces are lined up for a disaster to about to happen to one of the characters as they enter the scene, and it's, it's, almost, it's comical. It's a comedy, because we, as the reader, we know what they're about to walk into. Here we have these two mighty men, at least in the natural, with unbelievable power and great authority. King Xerxes and Haman both have unbelievable authority under them. And yet we'll find them again and again in literal laughable situations, looking more like one of the Three Stooges than great kings or leaders. The book of Esther wants, us to, or wants to point out the absurdity and foolishness of wickedness. To point out or, and to invoke the comedy within King Xerxes here right at the beginning. We kind of see this image already beginning to unfold with him. He's the the ruler of 127 provinces. He's got unbelievable amounts of authority. Countless people under him. And yet he cannot get his wife to come to him when he calls. It's it's meant to be ridiculous. It's meant to be over the top, this story story shows us the the absurdity of what's really going on. And he's depicted as this kind of irrational drunkard in this situation in chapter 1. The text makes the point to say that every man could have his fill, right? So he wants to kind of show his power, his might, that he has more than enough. That Anybody can literally have as much as they want. And yet it also, it kind of ha- brings on an implication that they also don't have to have anything to drink. They don't have to drink more than they can. And yet here we find the king, the ruler of them all, the one who's supposed to stand as the example. Is angry and drunk. It says he was filled with spirits. He was, and he's like, bring out my wife. I want to show everybody how pretty she is. It's ridiculous. This is the king acting like a fool. And then the whole rest of it is just him like getting really serious about how angry he is and how irrational he was. The principle or sorry, the pinnacle of humor though that we'll see as we go through this book of Esther is always at the expense of Hammond himself. This guy he gets it bad. And I think we're meant to laugh at certain parts. The more that I understand, kind of what's really going on, and some of the absurdity that it's it's pointing to, I you want to laugh. One situation we'll look at that I'll just kind of point to is that Haman is is forced to publicly honor Mordecai. It's one of my favorite parts of the story because it's so absurd. So Mordecai, is, or sorry, Mordecai is kind of is Haman's like enemy. Haman is the kind of antagonist, and Mordecai is the protagonist, and He's just fuming with anger at Mordecai and so he makes this plan to kill him and he's going to the king to say, king, I want to, des- I want to see him destroyed and you- I want permission to kill him. And the king, as, as Haman walks in, he- the king talks first and is like, hey, just the guy I wanted to see, Haman, I really want to honor somebody. I want to do something really great for somebody. What, what do you think I should do? And Haman's like, well, who else could he be talking about but me? Because who's greater than I am? And then, so he's like, yeah, throw him a parade, like just a ridiculous over-the-top parade, and there'll be like a marching band, and, you know, we'll have some military, I don't know. He probably like really described it more than the text even gives us. And the king's like, yeah, that's a great idea, that's pretty honoring, I want you to do that for Mordecai. (laughs) And you're like, dude, you walked right into that, man. And that's one of those things where you see this kind of comedy, because we knew what was happening. It sets the whole story up for us. We know what the king wants. We know what he's been thinking about the day before, actually the night before he can't sleep and he remembers Mordecai and the great thing that he did in saving him. And so we kind of see that it's like this, really like just a perfect comic setup where we get the whole image and we get to see the character walk in and look like an idiot. It's kind of the the standard or the typical, you know, the villain falls into his own trap kind of scenario. And even at his death, Haman is going to be killed on the very pole that he had designed and built to kill Mordecai on. God, there's there's an image here that we see in other places in in the scripture. In Psalms 2, verse 4, it says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The one enthroned up in heaven, God, the Lord scoffs at them. He laughs. He scoffs at them. And what it's talking about, it says before that, is he's talking about kings and rulers, people of power who plot against his people, against his anointed. He laughs at them. He scoffs at them. And that's the image I think we're seeing here in the book of Esther. is, God is This is written in a way to just make them look like fools, to see the absurdity of trying to stand against God. We're obviously meant to laugh, but we're also meant to be taught something. That the arrogance of this world, that those who see themselves as great or wise people are not nearly as strong and powerful and as wise as they think they are. And anyone who finds themselves opposing God's people will find themselves in opposition to God himself. That is something we will see in this story again and again, and they will only succeed in bringing on themselves back onto their own head the very ridicule or oppression that they sought to bring on God's people. That's one of the lessons we will see again and again throughout this story. Number two, we'll see human responsibility. Human responsibility. God's actions and providence behind the scenes, I believe, is undeniable. When we're looking at the story in its entirety. Even though God is not mentioned, we see his work. But the initiative of Mordecai and Esther should also not be forgotten. Their decisions to act greatly shaped the outcome of the story. It was their decision to act on what God's providence was leading, even at great cost to themselves. In chapter 4, Esther says, she will act, she's going to do it, she's going to make a step to save her people, even if it costs her life. And she famously says, if I perish, I perish. Even if I die, I will do it. The story will challenge us to act and to trust in God's great purpose and plan, even when it means a sacrifice for ourselves, even if it's sacrificing our pleasures or our securities or even our lives. Mordecai also famously tells Esther in verse 14 of chapter 4, right before she responds with, If I perish, I perish. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Probably the most famous line of the book. I think if anybody could quote one verse from Esther, it's for such a time as this. And we're going to be reminded through this story that A, we are where we are for a reason and for a purpose. We are where we are for such a time as this. There is a reason we are where we are. And we can be asking ourselves, what can I do then now with what I have, with where I am? And for what purpose might I have been placed here where I am? Rather than, how do I get out of here? Which is our tendency. But how, what can I be doing? Why might I have been placed where I am? And B, if we refuse to act, if we say, okay, I see where I could be doing more. I see where I could be investing more, but ah it's going to cost too much someone else will come along and take your place god can do anything without us he chooses to use us and maybe we are where we are for a reason but god's will will be done god's will will be done it's a great gift to us to be a part of it back to our key themes Number three, this is the main one that I want to look at, is looking closer at divine providence. What is divine providence? It's God, from his foreknowledge, as he knows all things before they come to be, working all things out for his purpose and plan. There are many events in this story that would seem to be incredibly lucky coincidences. Over and over in this story, things seem to just fall into place. To tip the balances in the favor of the Jews against their enemies. And though God is not mentioned, it's clear that the characters themselves seem to be very aware that there is a higher power at work. Like Mordecai telling Esther that it is perhaps for this time... For this moment that she's been placed where she's been placed. Maybe there's a reason for it. It wasn't just luck. It wasn't just a coincidence. There was a purpose, God's plan at work. And this is a really strong contrast from God saving his people in other areas of the Bible, right? Especially, or I would say most famously would be Egypt. When God saved his people from Egypt, there was, it was obvious. God has mentioned quite a lot, actually. But here there are no great signs or wonders or spectacular events. There's not even any prophets, not even a mention of God's name. The story reminds us that even when God seems to be hidden, even when God seems to not be there, when we look around, where is he? And he seems like he's far away. When he doesn't show himself mightily as he does in other places in the Word of God or at other times in our lives, He is still there. He is still there. He is present and working to protect us, to save us, to deliver His people. He is always working for that purpose. So what does this story mean then for us today? What are we going to see overall as our application? In closing, God, I believe, wants to remind us of what I'm going to call the Vashti effect. That's, that's my term, so if you've never heard of it, I'd be really surprised if you did. This actually came to me. I was, uh, after reading a lot about uh, Esther and reading a lot about chapter one, I was like, all right, God, I, wanted, I want us to have something that is going to encourage us, something that's going to strengthen us, and uh, actually had dreamt about it. I'm not saying it was like a prophetic dream. I might have just been thinking about it too much the day before. And I thought about this idea of Vashti's effect, coming up with the term the Vashti effect. Just bringing you into my mind, I know it's scary. So here she is, right? She's throwing this party for all the women for seven days, which I can only imagine is a lot of work. I just uh, celebrated a birthday party of my wife's mom yesterday, and it was a lot of work, and it was just one afternoon. I can't imagine doing a seven-day party for literally hundreds of people, and she was responsible for all of the, the party for all of the women. And then in the midst of this, her husband's like, hey, you know, come, I want you to, you know, probably dance for us. It's probably what he would have requested. Uh, so just drop everything, come over here, and, and she's like, well, no, I got things to do. I don't know. I'm just, we're, I'm taking some liberties here now i don't want to make any mention of any kind of moral there's no i'm not making a moral statement on what happened there because the the Bible's, it doesn't make any moral statement about it i personally don't think that she had done anything wrong by refusing to go to him obviously at that time it wasn't illegal afterwards it was so that's one effect she had But um, I'm not saying that it was... I don't think it was really a bad thing or a good thing. It It was actually just some insignificant moment in her life. She just happened to decide not to go when she was called. I mean, sure, the king thought it was wrong, as we saw. But the point I want to make is how big the effect of her action really was. Her action in itself was nothing spectacular, But it set in motion the events that would lead to the salvation of all the Jewish people of the land. If she had gone to the king in that moment, we wouldn't have the book of Esther. We'd have no Queen Esther. Mordecai could never have uncovered the plot to kill the king, which would eventually lead to him being raised to power. Haman's plan or plot to destroy the Jews would not have been stopped. And more importantly, Christianity may never have been if all of the Jews had been destroyed God saved his people here in this story of Esther through his providence to keep his greater promise that would eventually lead to Jesus Christ and our salvation this is not only a story about how God saved the Jews in Persia it is the story of our own Christian heritage it all began here with Queen Vashti. We can only imagine what would have happened if she had gone to the king that day. Her one simple refusal to go to the king when he called changed everything. It was literally the first knocking over, the knocking over the first domino that would unfold an entire collapse, entire change of history it's really got me thinking because she certainly had no idea what she was doing, and we don't know much else about her. She certainly had no idea of the effect that she would have. There's a reason why the story starts here, at the first domino. Even though God is never mentioned, we see his hand at work through the most seemingly insignificant of acts, to move the pieces into place to save all his people. And so I ask you, what has God done to save you? What has God done to save you? Have you ever thought about it? What might have happened in the background of your life that led you to be here today? Can we really ever know or imagine I think of John six forty four, a verse that changed my life forever. No one can come to me, Jesus is talking, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. And when I read that and I think about God's providence, I think what has God done or been doing in the background of our lives to draw us to Jesus. There are the big moments that maybe we remember the significant ones the obvious ones but how many more that we never saw or never noticed maybe through somebody that we never would have expected some moment that we didn't notice that God used to set things into motion to draw us to him. And 1 John 4.10 says this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We are drawn to him from the state of our sin and desperate need to be saved, and he offers us love, a love that he has always had for us. Long before we loved him, or before we knew him, before we had ever heard of him, before we had ever done anything to deserve him or his love or his grace, he loved us. So I encourage you, as we close, to take a moment and ponder the significance that you're here today, that you're in this room right now. And maybe you believe Or maybe you don't. Maybe you're here just questioning Christianity. I put before you now, we are all here today because of divine providence. It is not an accident that any of us are in this room, that any of us have come to believe, that any of us have been drawn to Christ in any way, shape, or form, whether it's the very beginning of questioning or inquiring what it really means, or you've been a believer for many years. It was God's providence, it was God's drawing that brought you to Christ. And it doesn't matter if you knew that or not, or even if you want it or not, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, nothing that can pull us apart from the love that He has for us as he draws us to him. And when I think about the chances that I would be here today, when I look back at my life, that I would call Jesus Lord at all, I immediately feel a sense of great love, the great love of God for me. Who knows what all he's done to bring us here. But I know it was him that did it. I want to invite the band to come back up. And end with you are loved you're loved beyond your capacity to truly grasp its full depth you were loved beyond time itself before you were you you were loved and before you loved you were loved first amen let's pray father we thank you that you draw us to you that you do things behind behind the scenes